sacrifice. Everybody say sacrifice. That's a, that's a word we hear a lot and, and we kind of shun away maybe. But kingdom parenting means sacrifice. So when you think about it, brothers and sisters, how will history look back and view how we parent the current generation? How will history look at us? We live in the present, but we're often judged in the future. Amen? What has history told us about previous generations of parents? In, the, in, in America, there's a saying that the World War II generation was the greatest generation. Greatest generation. Called so because they fought for freedom across the world. They traveled to distant lands and stood for freedom. But when I look back over the history of this country, I see emphatically some other generations that must have been pretty good. For the Revolutionary War was fought by a generation that sacrificed The civil war in this country was fought by a generation that sacrificed. World War I was fought by a generation that sacrificed. The Korean War was fought by a generation that sacrificed. The civil rights conflict in America was fought and and, and pursued by a generation of people that sacrificed. The Vietnam War was fought by a generation that sacrificed. The Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts and wars have been fought by people who have sacrificed even unto death. So you get the picture. In American history, there's always been a generation that answered the call to sacrifice to protect the freedoms or gain freedoms for the people of our country. Now, this means that some parents had to teach their children about sacrifice. Some of them had to teach them that in the face of extreme danger, you may lose your life, but you stand and be willing to give everything you have. My brothers and sisters, the best teacher regarding sacrifice is the visual model of sacrifice as we rear our children. Children will learn the importance of sacrificing for others if they see us making those same types of sacrifices. You let your children hear you on the phone telling your best girlfriend or your best guy friend now, I don't know why the church keep calling me and sending me all these emails. Dexter better know I don't have time for all that. Every time I turn around, they want us to do something. And your children hear that. What do you think goes through their young minds? Oh, you mean sacrificing for the kingdom is, is something I don't really have to pay attention to? I can ignore those emails that start off, Dear Parishioner. (laughs) So they need to see us making 
Those same types of sacrifices. Kingdom parenting requires sacrifice. It means these things and more. Now, I'm going to tell you something, and, and God, is, God is good like this, because even today, uh, Dexter didn't know that I was going to be preaching about, about children and things like that, and, and his son, Dekai, bless his heart. So you can say what you want about somebody when you say bless their heart first. <laughs> I'm kidding. Don't do that. <laughs> but Dekai comes up to me in the comments today. And he says, Pastor Ray, and I was talking to somebody, and Dexter says, say excuse me, son. And he says, excuse me, Pastor Ray. I said, yes, son. He said, did you know that talking on your phone could be idolatry? I had to check my phone and make sure I wasn't on it right there. He said... And I said, idolatry? Where do you get that word from? He said, five years old. He knows about idolatry. Dexter says, we just had a lesson in the family about what's idolatry. Not more than five seconds after he said that. <laughs> he says to Dexter, Daddy, can I have your phone? I just... <laughs> so... <laughs> So for those of you who wonder why we can't seem to hold the word long, <laughs> it started when we were kids. That's what, that's but, but they, you know, sacrificing for your children means a lot. It means things like living a life for others before our children. It means going to their games and their school events, cheering them on without yelling at the umpires or basketball officials. I just thought I'd throw that in. But it also means demonstrating sacrifice in the way we spend our money. If your children see you recklessly spending your money on things you do not need. But when it comes time to add food to the budget for Epic or some ministry at the church. You'd have thought we was talking in Chinese. Oh, I don't understand what you mean, Pastor. So, so it means, sacrificing for them means modeling the sacrificial life of Christ before our children. It means understanding what Jesus meant when he, when he said foxes have holes and birds have nests. Somebody read this before, didn't you? But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus wasn't worried about a palatial mansion in a suburb with two and a half car garage and picket fences and cable TV and all of those things. He wasn't worried about that. What he was worried was, he said, here's the driving force of my life. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day because when the night comes, no man can work. So what do you suppose went through the minds of Joseph and Mary when they realized that they were chosen to parent God on earth. 
Imagine the level of sacrifice Mary felt necessary after the visit from the angel. Everything in her life changed. Whatever she wanted to be, she was now blessed among women. Whatever she wanted to do, it was now blessed is the fruit of your womb, Mary. Whatever she had planned for her life, the angel said, you're going to have a baby boy and you call his name Jesus. You'll parent him. He'll grow up. But here's what's going to happen when he gets grown. I wish I had a witness here. He is going to save his people from their sins. Everything changed for her. And so kingdom parenting requires a high commitment to sacrifice. Here's something else. Kingdom parenting shapes lives for the purpose of kingdom responsibility. Kingdom parenting shapes lives for the purpose of kingdom responsibility. Who we are as children says much about who we become as adults. There are some of us in here that did not learn that sharing lesson as children. Don't be looking around. And we have not yet learned it as adults. We were selfish kids, and we became selfish adults. We were self-absorbed as children. Never want to let anybody play with your ball, huh? It was yours. Then we became selfish adults. And so what I'm saying is who we are and what you do and how you shape your children says a lot about what they become when they become adults. If you shape them and allow them to be reckless children, undisciplined, then they will be reckless and undisciplined as adults. Ain't but one amen, but that's all right. I'll take the one I can get. It's, it's hard to hear, but it's true. Just so you won't think I made this up, here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now that's a process. That's a releasing. He gave up his childish ways. Too many of us still hold on. To our childish ways. The inner child in you is making all the decisions. Oh, come on here, somebody. You can't live without love. Because the inner child is saying you got to have somebody in your life. The inner child is not asking for you to have someone who loves the Lord, who can lead and guide and direct. The inner child is saying any old body will do. And we find ourselves hooked up and linked up to people that, you know, years later you're looking around saying, what was I thinking? Paige, I'm going to stop telling what you do. No, I'm just kidding. 
I'm picking on Dexter for some reason today. I don't know. But uh, he says, I gave up them childish ways. Maturing into adulthood means relinquishing childish inclinations. So, uh, you know, you ever, you ever meet somebody, an adult, who just can't get along without having their way all the time? And if you haven't met them, you might be that one. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I ain't trying to start nothing. But you, 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 know, you meet people like that and you wonder, how do you get this grown as old as you are and you cannot deal with not having your way? They come to the church meetings, throw their idea on the table, and everybody say, well, that's good, but not right now. They get that pouty mouth. You've seen it in your children, haven't you? No, you can't have that. Lips stuck out and all that. It's a shame to see grown people act that way, isn't it? I want to say something. Just put that lip back in, please, would you? You're messing us up. (laughs) But that's what happens. When you don't learn how to put away your childish ways. So what makes us give up our childish ways as we mature? Here it is right here. We come face to face with responsibility and we accept it. See, you, you don't give up those childish ways when you, when you reject responsibility. Rejecting responsibility takes on many forms like, I'm not going to pay this bill I made. I, I charge this, but I'm not gonna, I'm not, I don't want to pay for it because the bill just showed up now. Or I'm going to be on Facebook crying about my bills. Two weeks later, you were celebrating the 70-inch TV you just bought. Now you're asking everybody to pray for you. <laughs> pray for me these bills. You know, a month ago, you were celebrating that brand new car. Now you say, pray for me, the car note came. You know you couldn't afford the ride when you bought it. And I tell you, I may nod and smile in your face when you ask me stuff like that, but I really don't know how to pray that prayer. I'm just, well, what do I say here? And so, and so you accept responsibility. Being a kingdom parent means that you accept and hold to the truth that God shaped your life with the responsibility to shape lives for the kingdom. Your role as a parent is not just to revel in the joyous euphoria of saying, look what I have done in regard to your children. Now, I'm saying this because we got a lot of new babies at Bethel Gary. Praise the Lord for that. Come on. That's right. Amen. I'm encouraging people to grow to church any way they can. I'm just. We have all these little babies, but I'm saying this to especially these parents who have little children. Understand that your responsibility is to shape that life to be of service to the kingdom of Christ. Not just to say, look at what I've done. It's more than a celebration of a new life. It is acceptance of a new kingdom responsibility of molding a life or lives for kingdom service. And let me tell you, nobody told me that when I became a parent at 21 years old. My church didn't teach me that. 
Nobody said that my job as a parent wasn't just to go around and show people pictures of my baby. Or when I needed some money, look at me and my baby, you know, we're struggling. But my role as a parent was to take seriously the responsibility of shaping those lives, those children, for the work of the kingdom. And so, I'm telling you, and I'll share next week more, as I said in detail, about rearing kingdom children and God's kingdom agenda for our children. So let us now, let us now turn our attention to what children really teach us about the kingdom. Now, in this text... In Matthew 18, 1 through 6, we find Jesus speaking specifically with his disciples. But to understand what he's saying to them, we must look at the context of this passage, which really kind of begins in the previous chapter or chapters. Jesus had a tough job right here on earth. He had to deal with teaching kingdom principles to people that really were not yet in the kingdom. Now think about that. There had been no payment for sin. There had been no, 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 no uh, gospel to be believed and received and accepted. They hadn't said, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. But he had to teach them about the kingdom. So here's what happens. In Matthew 17, we see an example of this, this struggle that Christ had to deal with. Verse 14 says, and when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son. Here's a parent bringing his child to the disciples and came up to Jesus and said, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For he often falls into the fire and into the water. Imagine what it would have been like to parent a child in those circumstances. But here's verse 16. Watch this. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. So I did. You know, Jesus had been on the mountain of transfiguration. He was in the valley. He brought his son to the rest of the disciples, and nobody could heal him. Now, this is interesting because there had been a, a lot of healing going on before that. But here the disciples couldn't heal this man's son. So he says, I'm bypassing you. I'm going to the top. He brings him Jesus. Now, Jesus does something interesting. He does not address the man directly. Look at what he says. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Then he starts talking to the man. After he chastises his disciples. You see that? He says, bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon. And it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Now look at verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately. We don't want to be embarrassed in front of the crowd. You know how we are. Pastor, can I see you for a minute? Yeah, that's it. (laughs) And he said, why could we not cast out 
the demon. And it implies there that we tried. They may have prayed some prayers, said a few abracadabras and hocus pocuses, and, you know, they might have even laid hands on them. They might have tried everything they could, but the demon persisted in the boy. Now look at their question. Why could we not cast out the demon? Why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we cast him out? And Jesus had given them the answer, but they did not hear it. Now, if they had been paying attention, when the man said, I brought them to your disciples, they couldn't help them. Jesus said, how long do I have to deal with your, your faithless selves? Here you are, faithless. You are faithless and twisted generation. Right there. Watch this now. Is the answer as to why they couldn't cast him out. You have no faith and you're twisted. <laughs> Some of y'all looking at me like, I know he ain't talking about me, is he, But here's Jesus saying to those who were following him, who were close to him, you have no faith and you come from a twisted generation. So the inability to hear what Jesus was saying is there, it's it's evident. Now, the question they now ask in Matthew 18, 1 begins to make sense because they didn't hear what he said when he responded to them in Matthew 17. So now they ask this question in Matthew 18, and and it demonstrates that the disciples were in a carnal mindset regarding the kingdom of God. Look at the next question they ask. At that time, disciples came to Jesus saying, well, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Now, that's interesting Because they were interested in greatness and not service. Sound familiar? Hmm? They didn't come to Jesus and say, how can we best serve? They didn't come to Jesus asking, how can we attain the faith necessary to keep the enemy at bay and to cast out demons and to say the mountains be removed to the depths of the sea? They didn't ask that question. No. On the contrary. They went right to self and selfish desires. Which one of us? Jesus, you don't have to be looking around. Just right here. Which one of us, and you could kind of see, you know, I, I'm just using a little poetic license here, but imagine for a minute when they ask that question, which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom? See, isn't that similar to how some Christians view being in the kingdom? Can I be considered great? Now, you might not say that out loud. But, oh, in the inner recesses of the mind, sometimes things get turned around and you begin to think, what can I do to make impact? And sometimes it's 
it's maybe innocently motivated. See, I, I know pastors struggle with this. And I'll tell you why. Because far too many times, greatness in ministry is measured by the size of your congregation. So instead of sharing the gospel with people and trying to get as many people to come to know Jesus, we just want them to get in the room. Do I have a witness here? I made up my mind when I decided I was preaching nothing more than the gospel anymore in my life that I may never have a big crowd. See, gimmicks get us in the room. Huh? <laughs> Buying big coliseums and building big beautiful edifices, edifices get us in the room. Having a very nice and lovely and conversational and friendly mindset and friendly tone will get us in the room. Don't you know God loves you? God loves you. Just as you are, you don't have to change a bit. I know you cuss all the time. But that's why we have grace for your cussing tongue. Hallelujah. See, that gets us in the room. Nobody wants to come to the room when it's saying, we're going to deal with your sin right now. We're going to deal with where you dropped the ball. We're going to deal with where you messed up. No, I'm going to the room where they make me feel good. They make me, I know I'm a fool, but they make me feel good for being one. <laughs> so I, I, I understand this. And even those who sit today listening to me may struggle with this desire to be great. Like I said, maybe it's an honest desire to do great things for the kingdom, but it's a desire nonetheless and perhaps a question in our minds. So before we go persecuting these disciples too much, let us think of ourselves and where we are and whether we've asked that question, oh, I want to do great things. I want to be great. I want to do this. Who doesn't want to get greatness and the accolades that come as a result of it of course we do but understand that it's our flesh that is driving that oftentimes but look here at what Jesus does when they ask this question I'll be through in just a few minutes here he takes this opportunity to teach them now he could very well have justified scolding them he could have very well said that I'm going to, I just told you that you were perverse and faithless and twisted. He could have taken them back and said, didn't you just, didn't you hear me then? What do you think has changed in 15 minutes? But he takes the opportunity to teach them. And look at what he says. First thing he teaches them, children teach us how to enter the kingdom of heaven. How we get in. He says in verse 2, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never 
enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice that Jesus, in bringing the child to him, gave them an object lesson on salvation. And here are the points of that lesson very quickly. Being saved requires turning. Everybody say turning. Being saved requires turning. He says, he says, unless you turn. Now that means you are going in one direction and you need to turn and go in the opposite direction. You are walking towards your flesh and you need to walk towards the spirit. Oh, I wish I had somebody here. You have to turn away from your fleshly, selfish, sinful desires. Where you put self ahead of the kingdom, you've got to turn. What do you have that God cannot have? What money do you have saved that God cannot have? Oh, don't get quiet now. Second thing, second lesson here is that being saved requires a childlike trust in God. It requires a childlike trust in God. Look at what it says here. He says, and you turn and become like children. You become like children. Being saved means that you become like that trusting child. One of the reasons why we have so many laws to protect children is because children are trusting. You know, their first teacher, their parents, they trust them. If you tell a child something, they, chances are your child, they'll do it because you said it. They go to school and they trust the teacher. How twisted is our world now that we have teachers who are molesting children. We have teachers who are trying to be intimate with children that they are teaching. Because children generally trust their teachers. So being saved requires a childlike trust in God to be able to say that, Lord, I may not understand everything about this, but I'm just going to trust you. See, there are some of us in here that, that have been real hesitant with that with God. You know, we've been more like, um, all right, God, uh, I need you to explain yourself on this point. Now, I want to understand why. I have so much trouble in my life and I go to church every Sunday. I need an explanation. When God is saying, I need you to trust me. I need you to trust me that everything, all things will work together for your good if you love me and are called for my purpose. I need you to trust me. And here's the third thing. Without either of those things, we cannot be saved. Let's not sugarcoat this passage. Jesus is clear. If you aren't willing to turn and if you're not willing to trust Jesus as a little child, trust his mother when she says, come here, boy, it's all right. You can walk to me. Then you can't be saved if you don't trust God that way. You can come up here and every Sunday, sit on the front row, have your Bible wide open, memorize it from cover to cover. And if you don't have those things, you cannot enter into the kingdom. So children teach us how to get in the kingdom. Now, here's another thing children teach us. Children teach us about kingdom humility. Watch this now. Matthew 18 and 4 says, whoever humbles himself like this child, again, Jesus has this object lesson, has this child in front of him. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Wait a minute. 
thought, if you were going to talk about greatness, it should have started with whoever answered your call first. Right? It should have, it should have started with who left their fishing business and came and followed you. It should have started with those who doubted you, but now follow you. Jesus said, no, that's not where it starts. He says, I'm going to get, you want to know what's greatness? It's who's humble, who has humility in their life. Now, in order to understand how to live in the kingdom, Jesus illustrates the humility of this child. Now, in case you have forgotten how much humility it takes to be a child, think back on how you responded to loving discipline as a child. Or look at children just after a parent applies some loving discipline. What do they do? See, in humility, they're not afraid to cry. They show emotion. How many times have you said to your child, stop, don't do that. They get near electrical plug and they just bust out in tears. My daughter was good for that. She was, and I'm glad she's kind of not here today because she would be mad if I told the story. But she was always the one that I could just look at her and say, Angelica. And she would just start crying. As I got older and she got older, I thought that's a setup. She know how to get to daddy's heart, right? Okay, all right, I'm going to leave you alone. <laughs> but that's, look at how children respond. They're not afraid to show emotion. They have a humility. They will cry. They will wail. They will let the tears come. Their nose will be run. They don't care. This is who I am right now. Now, here's another thing. They're not afraid to go to the parent for affirmation even in their failures. So here, you have disciplined your child, spanked them or whatever you've done, scolded them, they're crying, and what do they do? They run right to you. How crazy is that? (laughs) You know, you just whooped me, but I'm running to your arms? That takes a lot of humility. (laughs) Hmm? Because you know why they do that? Because they understand that right after discipline needs to be affirmation. They need to be affirmed that that you still love them. They need to be affirmed that you're still mattering to them. If you discipline and you don't affirm, you are abusing. I just threw that in for free. These are but a couple ways that children show us humility. It is this type of humility God wants to see from his children. He does not desire the prideful indignation we often show him when he disciplines us. Our pride will be our undoing. This I know all too well. The feeling of spiritual invincibility is great temptation for those who are in spiritual leadership. But remember what the scripture teaches us about pride. Solomon wrote these words in Proverbs 16 and 18. He says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride will be our undoing. 
God wants humility. Finally, children teach us about God's protection. Everybody say humility and protection. Watch this now. Matthew 18, 5 and 6. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, Jesus is getting serious right here. If you mess over one of my children, come on, parents, help me here. You can say a lot to me, but don't mess with my babies. You might have a cuss word on your tongue for me, but leave my babies out your mouth. I wish I had somebody here. You might not love me, but don't mess with my children. Jesus says, if you mess with my children, let me tell you what's going to happen. It'd be better for you to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. When I read that, the first thing came to my mind was, what can be worse than that? I mean, think about it. That's the old mafia thing. We got a pair of boots for you. They're not made out of them pretty shoes like Jones got on today. They, they asphalt. They made out of asphalt. And we're going to take you and drop you in the water and see how you swim with those on. Not good, right? What can be worse than that situation? Here's what is worse. It would be better to be dropped with a millstone around your neck to drown in the sea than to die and go to hell. Hell is worse. Hell is worse. And here's what happens when you mess with God's children. You are putting yourself in danger. When you're an unbeliever and you start monkeying around with believers, you are putting yourself in danger of the hellfire because God always protects his own. I wish I had a few witnesses here. Somebody in here know about God's protection. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that we are protected ever since we've been selected. And we know we shall never be neglected because Jesus did the unexpected. He died for our sins. Who expected that? That one The Bible says that one would barely give his life for a good one. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. So I'm telling you right now that children teach us how God protects his family. If you're here today and you have not received the Lord Jesus as your Savior, I'm encouraging you to get inside this family by believing that Jesus gave his life for you That confessing your sin and saying, God, I want to be your child. 
opens the door for you to have protections that you never even knew you had. You want to know why Christians can get up in the morning and thank God no matter what's going on in their world? Because we know we're protected. I wish I had somebody here. You know why we can praise God through the storms? Because we know that God may not keep the storms away, but what he does, he weatherproofs us. That's why we can smile in the face of adversity. It doesn't mean that as a Christian, you're not going to have trouble. There's some days in your Christian walk where you will pray to tears run out of your eyes and you won't even have words to say. But at the end of the day, not my will, but thy will be 